listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Welcome listeners and viewers. We have a special edition of Affect Autism today. This is a live presentation at the ICDL International DIR Floor Time Conference. I am so thrilled to be presenting. This is Revisiting the R, Hidden Regulators in the Development of Relationships, with my guest, Dr. Ira Glavinsky of the Glavinsky Center for Child and Family in West Bloomfield, Michigan. Welcome, Dr. Glavinsky, who has asked me to call him Ira. Good job, all right, Daria. So I do want to thank Morgan at ICDL for the idea of having a live broadcast of Affect Autism as part of our uh, conference here. So today we're going to talk about relationships between parents and children or practitioners and parents, where we're often looking outward rather than tuning into our inner experience around another person. Dr. Glavinsky is going to discuss with me how to explore how relationships develop by examining their component parts, including the interoception that accompanies the development of a relationship. We will be discussing how disruption or discord in any component aspect of the relationship influences its development and how to tune into these inner signals or hidden regulators, including the role of sensory experiences in this process which start in utero. So let's get started. Ira, tell us about the R in the DIR model of relationship. How does a relationship develop? Daria, in, in your introduction, my brain went in a direction that we didn't talk about, but it was when you said um, that I would like you to call me Ira. And I think it's it's very connected to the idea of relationships, um, because in my mind, relationships are visceral. In my mind, relationships are felt rather than being cognitive, mostly. And many, many years ago, I was um, working with someone and I was trained in New York to only call people by their last names and they had to call me by my last name. And um, there was something that was uncomfortable about it. And the discomfort was in my body and most likely in the other person's body. But because of my supervision, if I let my supervisor know that I was letting somebody call me by my first name, that was a big no-no. That was five points taken off on the page. And th this person said to me, over a period of time, there, there are things that I'd like to talk about, but I feel like I can't. That, that there's something that has been bothering me. We've talked about it, um, using last names. And there's something that makes me feel very, very uncomfortable. And we, we went through a long period of time talking about this. And I would bring it up in my supervision. And my supervisor said, no, you always call the person by their last name and your last name. And finally, I, I think both of us slipped and we both called ourselves by our first names. And the sky didn't fall or open up. Zeus didn't throw a thunderbolt from the mountaintop and nothing changed. Um, except that our interaction was much smoother. And then I went to work in a children's psychiatric hospital and everybody was called doctor. And I, again, I, I just had trouble with it. And I would 
talk to the maintenance people and they would call me Ira and everybody called me Ira and everybody else was Dr. So-and-so. And what I learned over the years, which brings us to how relationships develop is that there are all sorts of pieces that we're going to talk about in terms of hidden regulators that enter into the picture. And what I feel I've learned is that one of the most important pieces, if not the most important piece in having a relationship with anyone is the visceral comfort that two or more people have inter interwoven with each other. And it's really a kind of chemistry that goes on between us that really promotes the relationship. So, so right now we have these three areas really to look at. One is in the DSM-5, where all of us are put into boxes and all of us have individual differences. But if we have some likenesses between us, we get put in the box. So what we have lots of boxes that we call diagnoses. And in those boxes, people have the same names but each of the people in the box has their own individual differences. And in the last 25 years, there's been research that's been done at the National Institute of Mental Health, where they've tried to get away from these boxes. And they've tried to look at all of us in terms of, I, I would call it, different cells that, is, that start with genetics and go to molecules and then go to cells and then go to circuits and go to physiology and then go to social functioning, cognitive functioning, emotional functioning, development, and environmental input. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to develop what we would call a matrix where we try to fill in each of the cells that I just named. And the outcome of that is going to be that we see each person's individual differences. And what we're able to do is we're able to develop interventions based on all of these individual differences. So it will be looking at who we are authentically versus coming in and putting us into a box and giving us a label and treating everybody in the same way. The last piece of it, the signals, um, we're giving signals all the time. We know this and all of you who are familiar with the DIR model know this. And one of the things that we have really focused on over the years in our interactions with everybody seems to be on a verbal level. When we go in and we um, refer our child for an evaluation immediately, what happens is the person who we're seeing starts to talk to us with words. And I, I think what we've done is we've missed our bodies and the fact that our bodies are giving signals every moment. And we've missed working with people um, by focusing on the nonverbal signals. And just as a passing note, we've seen more and more children at younger and younger ages over the years who are showing disruptive behavior and mood disorders. 
um, the trajectory has exploded upward. And there was, the second thing is there was a study that was done in 2006 in Massachusetts with 4,000 um, 4, people in the, the study that showed that there were more or there are more children who are being thrown out of early education environments than children from kindergarten through grade 12 altogether. And that's an astounding statistic to feel that kids who haven't even entered school yet are getting thrown out of places more than kids who start school and then graduate from school. And my feeling is, and it's just the sort of IRA hypothesis, is that if we begin to train people on the nonverbal signals and learning about their bodies, and we train parents to learn about their bodies so that they can train their children to get in touch with their bodies, those children are going to be able to communicate those needs very early. And what we're going to see is that the patterns of disruption, um, the number of kids being diagnosed with mood disorders, I, I think is going to decrease. So that's a long-winded story for one slide. So I, I hear you say that it's really about that feeling that you get when you're with another person and how we need to get that into the training institutions. And hopefully that will happen over the next many years. Uh, before we really get into that further, uh, we wanted to share a video of Jeannie. What happens when you don't have a relationship? And I think what you were alluding to when you brought up the preschool statistics is maybe there's a bit of lack of relationships happening there. <laughs> You can find the link to the video at the blog post at affectautism.com. Do you want to say a word or two about that video? Yeah, the, the first thing I should say is it's important to understand that we're talking about dimensions and we're talking about continuums. And Jeannie is a situation of someone where all of the pieces seem to be missing. But we can go along a dimensional line from very mild difficulties with relationships to very severe examples of children, adolescents, adults missing the pieces. So we really have to be careful when we think about the dimension of relationships. And again, Daria and I will, will talk about the hidden regulators. And you can have one regulator missing. You can have two, three, four, five, six. So it isn't just a single example of if this is missing, this is the way you're going to turn out. Another thing is on this slide, how I've thought about relationships is really very similar to the way I think about attachment. These terms are umbrella terms. You think about the top of the umbrella and then the spokes coming out of the umbrella and each one of those spokes constitutes a different piece of the relationship. So when we go back, we think about the umbrella of attachment. People talk about attachment. Well, what are you talking about when you talk about attachment? What goes into attachment are things like thermoregulation or the temperature of the, the, the room or the body. Mother giving baby milk goes into the development of a relationship. The activity level of the parent and the child goes into the development of the attachment. 
and we have component parts of relationships. And what we tend not to do is we tend not to focus on those component parts. But if you do think about the component parts, then what you find yourself saying is, well, well, yeah, there's a relationship problem, but where is the relationship problem? Is it the attunement into the relationship? Is it the synchrony and the dance between the individuals in the relationship? Is it the fact that when the parent and the child are together, what the parent doesn't do is, is mirror or mark the child's experiences so that some experiences stand out and the child can feel, yeah, they really appreciate this in me? Is it the contingency in the relationship? I say good morning to you, and my expectation is that you're going to be contingent. You're going to say good morning to me. We both are talking about the same thing. I say something to you, you say something to me related to what I said to you, and I'll say something to you related to what you said to me. If I say good morning to you and you say, leave me alone, that's being anti-contingent. And if I say good morning to you and you say, oh, you see that bird up there in the tree? You're being non-contingent. You're not connecting up to what I'm saying to you. And then the fact that in any relationship, an individual hopefully is regulating their self, themselves and the person who we're talking to is regulating himself or herself, but they're also co-regulating each other. And if I begin to get activated in the interaction, the person with me in all likelihood is going to get activated. And what we're going to start to do is get involved in an activation or reactivity dance. And, and one of the things that, that we see is that when we are working with children who have dysregulated emotions and dysregulated behaviors, what that does, that child in front of us evokes a reactive experience in our bodies, our sympathetic nervous systems activate. And that now the child is reactive and I'm reactive. And when the child experiences my reactivity, they get more reactive. So I get more reactive. And what we find is that in, in so many situations with our children, what we do is we create the problem and the increased activation with our reactivity. And then we're trying to solve a behavior problem with the child and what we're doing unwittingly because we're not in tune with what's going on inside us is we create more reactivity. And, and I, I've always wondered, um, because the kids that I enjoy working with tend to be pretty disruptive, is why in our work, we're not talking about these things because these spokes or these parts of the relationship can help in our regulation of being with people who have difficulty with self-regulation and control. And at this point in time, what we're beginning to do, um, and, it, and it's really exciting, and it's trickling down very slowly from adults into the area of childhood. There are very few studies at this point of um, 
work with very young children in the area of interoception. And interoception is what I've already been talking about. Interoception is our awareness of our body signals. Our heartbeat right now is an interoceptive signal coming from within us. Our breathing pace is interoceptive. Our digestion is interoceptive. And there are interoceptive signals that are there all the time, but we haven't been taught to pay attention to those signals. And all of these things that I'm talking about, I think that have gotten not a huge amount of attention other than textbooks um, or in articles that are in college libraries, but, but bringing them to the real world, bringing them outside to all of us would be so important in terms of our work with children. Yeah, and there's such a focus on cognitive concepts explicitly with words instead of this interceptive experience and that visceral piece that you discussed with me in our past podcasts. We talked about interception a couple of times, and it's, it is something that we want to demonstrate here with the next video example. This is a beautiful example of all of those components that Ira talked about a minute ago. This, this is a video that I showed it just about all parents. And what I will tell them is I'm going to show you this and you're going to most likely say, why the heck is he showing me this video? This video doesn't have anything to do with what I came to talk about. And, and what I will say to the people who I'm working with, what I want you to do is watch this and I'll talk you through it. And I want you to think about the things that I'm saying related to you and your child. When I talk to my colleagues about this and, I, and I've shown my colleagues this video many, many, many times, they don't think about it as something that you would bring into a therapy room. Um, but as we begin to talk about it, the responses become very different. myself and I'm looking around me at the environment. I'm learning about what's in front of me. And this person comes on the scene. Now I'm learning about the person whom I'm with. And I'm going to be very watchful. And I'm going to connect myself with that person. And what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to feel what that other person is doing in that other person's body. And I'm going to be very watchful. If this person feels what I'm doing and my actions can be very difficult 
very hard, but I trust this person. I feel safe in this person's presence. And as I attune to her, we dance together in sync. Our rhythm, our pacing, our tempo is in line with each other. It's exquisite synchrony. And in a place of safety, I know that that person is not going to let go of me. So I can feel free to dance. And I'm noticing that when I do something, the person whom I'm with is doing something also and doing something that's connected to me. Boy, are we contingent. What you're seeing is my experiences being marked. You see the change in the music, the music goes up, my body goes up, and I can remember this experience as being special. That's what marking and mirroring is all about. Beautiful marking. Boy, in order to do this, we have to be on the same page. And I'm regulating myself, but I'm also regulating the person who I'm with. My rhythm, my tempo, my pacing does something to the rhythm, tempo, and pacing of the person with me. We're regulating each other. Again, you can see that the attunement is, is just so high. It's, in my mind, it's totally visceral. There are no words for it. I should say in all of this, and I haven't really said it before, but the importance of touch and the importance of connection between two people and, and the need to focus on that with very young children, the importance of learning about the body. to go back to Dr. Tippy's presentation that we, a bunch of us just saw, that scaffolding as she's spinning. Absolutely. The facial expressions, Daria, which is so profound.
So when all of these pieces are considered, all of these spokes, they have the relationship. And if something is going wrong in the relationship, boy, is it going to be clear. You get a feeling immediately when the attunement is off and that person just isn't with you, just isn't working for some reason. And if we're not dancing in sync, we're going to feel that we're stepping on each other's toes and the interaction between us is not going to be comfortable. And if somebody isn't contingent with you, you probably feel like you want to walk away. You know, I'm just feeling disconnected. And if important parts of the interaction aren't highlighted, like using a yellow marker on a textbook, you're not going to remember those pieces, those events. And if we're not co-regulating each other, like in the DIR framework, if we're not co-regulating, it just doesn't work. Okay, that, that was absolutely lovely. Um, a very powerful display of what we're trying to get across today with the hidden regulators and all the different components. So what about these hidden regulators? We just saw what the ideal relationship looks like, Ira. <laughs> yeah. I know you had pointed out when we talked about doing this presentation that people will often look at one component in isolation. They'll look at just attunement or they'll look at just synchrony, but we wanna highlight the importance of all of these. And, and another thing I wanted to bring up was in my presentation on Tuesday night, I talked about us all aiming to get to that ideal, but of course, nobody ever is ideal. We're never going to have that perfect pas de deux dance going, but there are things we can do to access that good relationship. And we're going to go through some of these components now in more detail. Yeah, I, I think, you know, to begin with, a lot of the work that I think about, it really starts, you know, early in a child's life, um, the, the parents getting to know their child. Um, but it really goes on in utero. The, the fetus and the mother-to-be already have the component parts of the relationship, and, and we don't think about it. But a mother going shopping and walking up and down the aisles, the movement of the mother is being felt by the prenate. And mothers talking, mother-to-be's talking to people in the environment goes through to the uterus so that the prenate is hearing the mother's sound and, and developing a familiarity with that mother-to-be. And it, it's kind of funny how with, with many kids, you know, certainly kids that I've seen, they do not like to touch and taste certain foods. And wouldn't you know it, those are the same or similar foods to what mother likes and dislikes. So the mother's diet is being transmitted to the prenate. So there are all of these things that go on that, um, are, are happening even before the child is born. And so what's happening in utero is the prenate is being prepared for a very specific kind of environment. And when the neonate is born, when the baby is born, and the environment is different from the prenate's experience in utero, 
there are going to be issues that are going to have to be handled. And, you know, do we think about that? Do we pass that on to parents to be? We don't have enough prevention programs. In my mind, it would be getting together with kids in high school and having them take classes before they get into committed relationships so that they have a sense of what they're getting into. So then what we have is we have an infant who's born and the infant may be placed on mother's tummy. And the infant is getting a sense of rigidity or tension or softness um, just from being put on mother's tummy. And mother is becoming acquainted instantaneously with baby because mother's getting a sense of the baby's body and movements on her body. So that these spokes that we saw in the dance are being developed right from the beginning and need to be paid attention to. And then as we move into childhood, we begin to see all of these things coalescing in a particular cultural environment. And our cultural environments are really different. And one of, one of the things that has, has really been a profound experience to me is about four years ago, I began to teach cross-cultural classes at the university where I was teaching. And I had to learn about other cultures. And it was a culture shock for me because I thought that the whole world followed Western culture and everybody did the same things as we do in the West. And boy, did I get hit over the head. The differences in parenting and different cultures, we, we have so much to learn from other cultures and, and to be able to use what parents in other cultures just do ordinarily and naturally that we haven't learned how to do in our culture. So I, I think that's just a added commercial to the presentation, but, but something so important to think about. And, and again, the importance of individual differences and a sensitivity to individual differences, the chemistry between us I was talking to Daria about um, Joan Borisenko. I'm not sure she's still at Harvard, but, but she was at Harvard. And she either edited or wrote this book that I had read many years ago. And, and she was talking about relationships and the effect of stress on relationships. And she was talking about auras that are around us and that we pick up these different kinds of chemical signals, electrical signals from people who we're with. And I, my first response was, I should put this book down. This is, you know, stuff that's way out there and is just, it's not something that I'm comfortable with and not something that familiar with. And then I read the book, The Chemistry Between Us, that, that's a fascinating book about relationships and the chemistry that goes on when we're in an interaction with another person and what we're experiencing and what we're taking in that we don't even know we're experiencing and taking in. But with this person, who I'm talking to, I feel so comfortable. What, what is this? I, I've just met this person and I, I feel this sense of safety and I feel that I can be really authentic with this person. 
And then I meet somebody else and I, I don't have the words for it, but we're not clicking together. It just doesn't feel right. And with some people, we feel this instantaneous comfort and with other people, we don't. And we have to pay attention to this in our relationships and our child-parent relationships, because this gets into something that, that many of you probably have had experiences. Selma Freiberg's work on ghosts in the nursery and the fact that, that each of us carries our history with us 24 hours a day. And when we interact with another person, our histories are interacting with their histories. And that's translated into body signals that we may not have paid attention to. And that's going to affect how we relate to this other person. And it's also going to relate to how we parent our children. There are these signals that are going back and forth between us and our children that have a historical component. And when we are doing certain things, it's coming from our historical experiences and it affects the relationship that we're in. Back to you, Daria. And this is why parent support group is so powerful. I, I facilitate ICDL's parent support group every week and now we have a monthly evening session and really having that shared history of parenting a child that has a diagnosis or doesn't have a diagnosis, but that those shared experiences really give us that visceral sense of safety that you don't share with other family members maybe or other friends. Also, I, I, I think the point you're bringing up here is that nobody can tell us when we feel safe. You either feel it or you don't, right? <laughs> uh, it's, it's that visceral sense that you're talking about. And it makes me think of how self-advocates say that they're only disabled by their environment. And we heard the other day in the presentation about environment, that environment can be the other person that you're with. And if you're disabled by the way that other person is talking to you, looking at you, having behavioral expectations of you, et cetera, et cetera, that doesn't make you feel safe. Exactly. You're, you're reminding me of, of two experiences. One experience is listening to people who talk about their kids and how they are parenting and they will say to me, well, it worked for me and my mom and my dad, so it's going to work for my son or my daughter. And my response is, there's something that you have to think about. Well, what's that? Well, your son or your daughter is not you. They're a different person. So why should what, had, what worked for you, why should it work for them? They're not you. And, and then the, the other story... Daria is um, when I, I worked with um, a person, this was in the graduate school, and we de developed um, a reflective practice course. And she had had years of experience of doing reflective practice. And I was a newbie doing this. I was doing it for the first time. I was doing it as an experiment to learn. And, and she got up in front of the class and she said, I want you to know that this is a safe place. This is a very safe place. And you can say whatever you want and it's not going to be judged. We are non-judgmental here. And I bolted up from my chair and I, and I said, don't tell me this is a safe place. Nobody can tell me that it's safe. When I feel safe, I will feel safe. But you can't tell me when to feel safe. And as far as being non-judgmental, 
if there was a possibility of being non-judgmental, we wouldn't be human because all of us from early on judge. What we can do is we can control our judgments, we can think about our judgments, but all of us have judgments. And, and it, was, it was just an important experience in starting the program for the first time. And that makes me think of something that Dr. Gordon Newfeld speaks about in terms of when you have an emotional outburst, he says, you don't suppress it, you temper it with other things. So similarly, like when you said you, you can, you can try to suppress your judgments or whatever, but you can temper it with alternatives like, well, I feel this, but maybe I'm not taking into consideration their cultural background. Maybe I'm not taking into consideration if they had a good night's sleep yesterday. Maybe I can take into consideration. So tempering it with the other and opposing view or whatever to sort of minimize the effects of your initial judgments. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I, I also like uh, Sarah wrote in the chat, I think that children feel these interoceptive signals and they show them non-verbally a lot, but with behavioral approaches and don't cry baby kind of phrases, they learn to suppress their body signals and messages. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking this is probably a non sequitur, but going around 180 degrees back to, you know, the focus on the component parts of the relationship, Breaking it down into those component parts, when we get on the floor with, with families, um, being able, besides everything else going on, to think about, is we, we think about it a lot in capacity one, capacity two, but, but it's also important when we're working with families to think about in this interaction that I'm watching between the parent and the child, what's the attunement like? What's the synchrony like? What's the contingency like? What's the co-regulation? What's the marking? Because we have to work on those things in addition to capacity one, capacity two, capacity three, capacity four, capacity five. Um, and, and we want to keep all of these things in mind because in our training, we can be trained to move in a particular direction. But what we want to do is we want to keep ourselves open to as many variables as we can. And, and it goes back to the first or second slide where you had DSM and you had research domain criteria and, and the signaling that what, what the research domain criteria is doing is it, it opens up the world to a huge number of variables. And, and, and I think if we can learn to pay attention to things dimensionally, you know, like, you know, we may not get a lot of information about cells, molecules, and circuits. We still have to work on how we can get that information out to all of us. But paying attention to the whole picture rather than a box, a diagnostic box, is going to bring us to a totally different place. Because if we focus on that diagnostic box, I know that in, in my work with bipolar patients, um, what we see is in order to get the diagnosis of bipolar disorder, you have to meet criteria A. And that's, that's pretty easy to see. But then they give you six or seven different characteristics in category B. And one person can have diagnostic category, one person can have the symptom one, symptom two, and symptom three. The next person can have symptom four, five, and six. The next person can have one, three, and five. And they're all put into the same box and they're treated very similarly. And 
I don't know how much progress, you know, we make when we use the same treatment, same medications for everybody when all of our bodies are different. And so paying attention to all of this, I think is really critical. And we're in the very, very, very early stages of developing groups that really work together interdisciplinarily. You know, we have multidisciplinary kinds of conferences where people get together and they give their ideas about a particular child who they may be seeing. But we have to talk and have consistent dialogue with people in different disciplines before we can really do the work effectively in my mind. This brings us to our conclusion that human relationships are complex. Yeah. And what I talk about, it's, it's, it's interesting, when I, when I work with parents is DSM-5 is a huge book. There are a lot of pages in this book. And the, 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 the pages in the book are filled with names that we use for kids, adolescents, and adults. And, and I think we really need basically one or two words in a diagnostic book. Um, I will tell a parent that the diagnosis of their child is complexity and that we are all complex. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at all of the pieces and work on all of the pieces. And then we'll put a picture of your child together and we will be able to develop a treatment plan together. I'm not going to tell you what to do. You know, I, I don't live in your body. And the kinds of things that we're going to come up with are going to be things that you think about because you live with them every day. And that's why it's important to hold in mind a diagnosis of complexity. Again, just my thought. Thank you, Dr. Govinsky. Ira, that was a fabulous illustration. And, and I've done a, a couple of podcasts, I think, on the arts and drama and different ways of expressing uh, with Dr. Newfeld on emotional playgrounds, how when we look through relationships and and that pas de example, it just shows you another way that these things can be expressed as opposed to cognitively and just discussing. It's, you know, all of these different ways that we can think about relationships. So thank you. Thank you all for participating in this live Affect Autism. And thank you so much, Ira, for being my guest. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for your comments. And thank you for allowing me to have fun. <laughs> Until next time, here's to choosing play and experiencing joy every day.